is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of the Enter Sad Men podcast, episode 71. Um, here with Steve and Richard as usual. Uh, the aim of the game is to create the definitive list of the best hard rock and heavy metal albums ever. And because it's a list, some will be at the top, some will be at the bottom. Uh, The ones at the bottom are actually not going to be all that bad. Well, with maybe one or two exceptions. Um, You had a good couple of weeks listening? It's been a brilliant, yeah, it's been a really brilliant week. I'll tell you you what's interesting about it, and this is a confession, it might just be me, and and, and if I'm slandering you, then then I apologise. But normally when we do a a week where there's a couple of albums you've not heard, you play it once, then you play it again, and then pretty soon you start cherry-picking the tracks. Maybe that's just me. Um, No, 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 I think we we all do that. But with this episode... (laughs) (laughs) Yes! Uh, yeah, he's far too Richard, much. Richard, it's it's a journalism thing. We just <laughs> cherry pick the facts. It's That's true. all we do. It's um, but yeah, these three albums. So I, I basically played them from the start, track one, and and just let them run. I've, I've really, really enjoyed them all three, and I sense I might be the only one who's <laughs> who's had that view on all three. But yeah, no, been good, been really good. Okay, uh, which two tr- albums? Or oh, sorry, no, let me start that again, Richard. Um, how many of the three albums have you really enjoyed listening to this week? <laughs> Mark, I've enjoyed them all for different reasons. <laughs> I suppose we ought to do it in order, chronological order. Um, Richard, you have the oldest record yet again. Mm. Yet again, the oldest record in the podcast tonight. Yeah. Tell us what it yeah, is. Yeah, back in the 70s. Uh, so, yes, we should say the theme of this episode is title tracks isn't it epic title tracks so we all had to go away find obviously loads of title tracks that we absolutely love and think are brilliant Um, but then the challenge came up with well actually is the rest of the album decent enough to stand behind it so i don't look at a number of bits (laughs) a question by the way a question that steve asked himself many times (laughs) (laughs) and it will be interesting won't it if the title track on each of these albums actually scores the highest of that album so we should come back to that uh, in the scores anyway yeah went here there and everywhere uh, and I came back to Deep Purple. We've, we've uh, focused on them quite a few times in the podcast so far, but not with Mr. Coverdale at the microphone. And so I went for the first album they did with him in the Mark III lineup, which is one of my favourite Deep Purple tracks of all time. And uh, that's the album Burn. So I was next, chronologically speaking. Um, and uh, do you know what? I started listening through some stuff and then suddenly it dawned on me there is there was only ever going to be one choice it's an album that uh, i think it was the third album that i bought with my own money it's an album that i still listen to regularly and have done over the 40 odd years that it's um that it's been out i, I just think it's a phenomenal album I, and i've really struggled to find much wrong with it over the last week it is strictly speaking it's the second release by motorhead and it's overkill so um I think Burn definitely meets the brief for Epic Track. I think Overkill definitely meets the brief for Epic Track. Steve, what Epic Track did you come up with? Well, what I would say is that the Epic Track I've chosen is not the greatest track off the album. True, I hold my hands up. But that's not because it's in any way inferior. It's just got some (laughs) astonishing acts to topple 
in um, on the piece of vinyl I have chosen. Whereas you deliberated, numbed and hard, and thought through what you're going to do, I knew instantly. As soon as you, as soon as, as soon as we said what Tico had spat out, I said, "Yep, yeah, I know, I know what I'm doing," and I've stuck by it. And I have had so much fun going back to an old favourite, a genuine thrash metal classic, and I mean classic. And I'll I'll be amazed if there are any dissenting voices when I bring <laughs> to the party a little bit later Exodus's debut, "Bonded by Blood." Well, I'm, I'm sure there won't be any dissenting voices in this podcast, but uh, let's see if there are any dissenting voices out in podcast land. Here are nine tracks. The last three are by Exodus. Make up your own mind. There you go. So that's woken you up, I'm sure. Um, but first of all, yeah, so let's go back 11 years <laughs> um, to Deep Purple and Burn and Richard. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, let's get over the bits and pieces first, shall we? So Burn uh, released uh, 15th of February 1974. It was recorded in November 73. Released on Purple's sort of kind of label, essentially EMI, produced by the band, uh, recorded as so many of their albums were in Montreux, Switzerland, with the Rolling Stones mobile studio. And it was the first of their albums with the Mark III lineup. So Gillen had left. We'll talk a bit about that, I'm sure. And was replaced by, well, David Coverdale, of course. Also Deep Purple had a new bassist. Glenn Hughes came in on bass guitar, but also vocals and i'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit obviously the others stayed the same richie blackmore on guitar john lord on keyboards and this time synthesizers we'll talk about that again later uh, and ian pace on drums it did pretty well it was a gold selling record on both sides of the atlantic uh, reached number three in the uk number nine in the u.s music wise a bit of a departure uh, again we'll, we'll we'll talk about that uh, shortly i'm sure track wise had uh, four on each side uh burn must might just take your life lay down stay down sail away on side one and then you fool no one what's going on here mistreated and a 200 on side two i think it's a fantastic album and and quite a departure in terms of style i think they were painting from a, a wider palette and the the arrival of of, of hughes and uh, and coverdale sort of you know gave them a, a real extra breadth so it's been great listening to it again but yeah i don't know how, how familiar you you two were with it did you know much about the whole album yeah but i mean bits and pieces obviously know the title track very well and um you know mistreated 
Sid, just one of those classics, isn't it, that uh, I think we all know uh, up in the um, pantheon of, of Purple songs. Listen, I, I, I loved Ian Gillen to bits and I, and I love what they did but with him at the mic. But I, I, I do really appreciate what they've done here. This feels like a band that's kind of growing up, kind of been through its adolescence. I know they're a massive band, but it just... This is such a different departure. All the, all the boys talk about it. I've read countless interviews over the last week or so about, you know, how they were going down this new sort of funky, groovy, just different. It just, just felt like a band that was just more relaxed. But the irony being that, that, that I think the band was in a state of absolute turmoil before they got around to actually recording mm. this thing, which, mm. which doesn't come across at all in, in the way this album's come out. It feels fresh, sounds great. Coverdale has never sounded better. But what an inspired decision to almost pair the vocalists, nice different voices it doesn't lose any of its purpleness but it is definitely a departure from earlier stuff but ultimately it's just a fantastic listen two or three great tracks on it really great tracks and um yeah i really enjoyed listening to it again uh, good mom yeah it's it's, it's strange isn't it I, the, the influence that coverdale has on that band is quite significant i think because it is a completely different sound to the Mark II Purple. I didn't know the album at all either, really. I knew Burn, um, and I knew Might Just Take Your Life and Mistreated, but probably because they were kind of staples in the Whitesnake set after Coverdale left Purple. So I knew them as Whitesnake covers rather than um, as, as Purple Originals. Hughes and Coverdale, hmm, yeah, it kind of messes with the band's identity a bit, I think. It, it makes it a slightly less consistent listen and sound, but there's no doubting the ability of the music, you know, as musicians. I mean, it's incredible. The, the one thing that I would say is that, Steve, you said it doesn't take away any of their purpleness. I think I probably broadly agree with that, but I think what it adds in is quite a lot of rainbowness and quite a lot of white snakeness mm. because you can hear both of those. Mm bands mm-hmm. i think when you listen to to this album but you're right uh, it is a, a a fantastic album much better than the band had any right to expect given mm-hmm. what they were going through at the time mm-hmm. but also i think just as you said richard it's a band that or, or i think he says what's it it's a band that's grown up it's a band that has nothing really left to prove and they come out with something completely different to anything that anyone in 74 expected so it's been a great week i've really enjoyed mm-hmm. it yeah and no, i mean let's We'll, we'll talk about uh, side one in in a bit, but I mean, just in terms of the arrival of of Hughes and uh, and Coverdale, let, let's wind it back a bit. Even before Glenn Hughes was secured, we should draw one of these rock family trees. Who else but uh, Phil Liner was mm. being courted? I mean, the whole Mark II lineup and all the friction between Gillen and and Blackmore. Gillen told him that he'd had enough and and was was off. Blackmore was really despondent and was thinking of dissolving the entire band wasn't he and uh, and then went went uh, with pace and tried out with with Phil Liner they felt that whilst they loved his voice at that point in time he wasn't a good enough bass player so it was just, <laughs> That's just I know just the, uh, hard to imagine a time when you would think that Phil Liner was not a good I know bass player. I know so and Glenn Hughes was pulled in part of the reason he joined was his his vocal ability <laughs> whilst he could sing he was recruited as basis because they actually thought they were going to secure Paul Rogers after the dissolution of, of Free, but Rogers decided I'm forming this band <laughs> called Bad <laughs> called Bad Company, and I'm uh, and I'm quite happy about it. I'll be pleased to listen back to um, many many episodes ago when we, uh, we we talk about 
bad company's debut and given the story uh, and the friendships that were being formed in that lead up to bad company it, it's not surprising i think that paul rogers realized he had something quite special in his hands and uh, and th- and that's yeah. why he he said no but then yeah i mean so coverdale we've done a number of white snake albums including you know 1987 about sort of what 20 30 episodes ago we talk a lot about about coverdale's ego don't we but here he is arriving what was he 21 something like that he'd only played in pubs was in a band that purple knew about saw the advert of melody maker and threw his hat in the ring with his very big head underneath it <laughs> yeah. with a with a moustache I'd love to have seen yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very rare footage of uh, a moustachioed David Coverdale. Singing shop assistant from Red Car, they called him. He was overweight as well. He looked nothing like, did he? The um, god. The chiseled rock car. god. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, yeah. There's interesting stories, aren't there, about the audition, about whether it was he, he was the only one who... There were loads of demos, so it might have, was he the only one who actually had the audition? I don't know. But if I was Ian Gillen and all this, and indeed Roger Glover, <laughs> fucking hell, I mean, they weren't exactly short of a decent bass player in the first place. Right? No, exactly. Um, but, you know, it, this must have felt like such a sort of line in the sand, as if you know, this could go one or two ways, and the likely way is it will implode, um, which makes this whole album, you know, really quite astonishing, given the kind of acrimony that went on. And... and uh, all the boys talk about how as soon as they got in the studio the sort of huge Coverdale chemistry it was a massively relaxed feel about the band but before they got in the studio when they started writing it just felt everything came together um, and it must be a great moment when that happens you know when you're making such a massive sea change to a band and it comes together so completely interesting okay shall we uh, we'll give uh, side one a listen then shall we Starts with the title track, Burn, uh, and then Might Just Take Your Life, Lay Down, Stay Down, and Sail Away. I mean, uh, Burn, what a track. I still consider this classic purple, because you've got you know, that dual organ guitar riff going on. You've got the machine gun drumming. Those who are listening, go back and listen to this track again, because the bass line is unbelievable. The, it's one of those purple songs where everybody is full pelt, and it and it just works. If Pace's drumming is machine gun, I'm not sure what Tom Hunting's <laughs> drumming is going to be described as in two albums' time. Um, or indeed Phil Taylor's. Or indeed Phil, I was going to say Phil Taylor. <laughs> Phil, the, the, the double bass man. I didn't know about that until, um, until I looked yeah. into Overkill. But, um, uh, yeah, this is, this is just consummate, isn't it? It's absolutely absolutely consummate you listen to this and and everything works everything integrates and bolts in exactly where it should be this process makes us listen to it and the first thing i heard when this when i listened to this really was hughes's bass it's just Mm. 
spanking, isn't it? And yeah, I mean, talk about setting out your storm. <laughs> uh, but interestingly, this is not how the album then develops, is no. it? It's, it, it goes in a completely mm. different direction. So, you know, you think, oh my God, this is going to be amazing all the way through. And it is, but for entirely different reasons. Yeah. I love Burn. You, you, you opened up the top of the show saying, yeah, will this, will the title tracks be the standout tracks on each album? Quite, quite, oops, straight away, no, because it's not, because the best track on this album ends side one. Um, I do like Might Just Take Your Life. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like Women from Tokyo, that opening. But I like that kind of bluesy rock gospel thing, which is very different from Burn. I love Ship Fug, Cat Bank. Sorry, Lay Down, Stay Down. <laughs> That was the working title, wasn't it? You saw that. That was the working title. Shit, fuck, cat, wank. Where, where there's a Blackmore solo. Just take it to church, my friend. Different gear. Um, but sail away for me. Track aside one, and and that's the complete. And it's a perfect way to complete side one and demonstrate what Hughes and what Hughes brings beyond his bass play. I just love that dual, um, dual vocal. I also love Sail Away, but Might Just Take Your Life is my track of the album. Okay. I just I just love it. Just, <laughs> and maybe it is because it sounds, it is very evocative of Woman from Tokyo. It was, But it's, I just love it. I love <laughs> the groove to it. But Sail Away is a close, I mean, it's a hell of a side one, isn't it? It's a Jack Daniels. It's a Jack Daniels track. I thought Sail Away. Yes, it is. Yeah, mm. yeah. A beautiful yeah. funky beat to it. I love the you know one the, the sort of Coverdale singing the sort of low bluesy stuff. Then Hughes going up in the register based on Superstition, I believe. I think that was the inspiration That's right. for it. Yeah, yeah. Was it yeah, Superstition? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, Hughes brought all this sort of, sort of funky funkiness yeah. into into the band. Yeah, I mean, they're they're really really fond of it as well. Sail away. I mean, it's it's um, one of Ian Pace's favourite Purple songs, apparently. And uh, mm-hmm. and Coverdale said it was it was one of my first really forceful lyrics. But then, and here's a talking point. He adds to that, but it should have been me or Glenn who sang the whole song because I'm not with you. Steve on this I personally really wish Coverdale had sung every song on this I mean I think I think yeah. I think Hughes's voice is good it's fine initially when I heard Burn and there's a bit in the middle you know um what is it you know we had no time we didn't even try which which Hughes sing um at the time I couldn't work out how Coverdale had managed to shift his voice and his register <laughs> and all of that and 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 it was only later I realized that that when hearing the rest of the album that they were they were sharing the dual vocal um it isn't interesting concept isn't it maybe maybe it's the novelty of the concept and it only works if you've got two great singers but i mean i i do take your point because coverdale is just gorgeous isn't he i mean physically as well as vocally um and and yeah 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 if all eight tracks had been sung by dc alone brilliant you'd get no truck from me on that but i i, I, I like there's something about sail away the, the it's almost like a i don't know it's just like a sort of two-part harmony and even though it's not because there's no very few harmonies going on i don't know it just works for me mm. on, a, on a really interesting scale permission to be slightly controversial i mean it's not really controversial Glenn Hughes doesn't even come close to Coverdale as no. a singer, and no. and so why put what if you're Glenn Hughes? Cov goes up, does his thing. Wouldn't you just go? Ah, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, but he, he had Blackmore's blessing, didn't he? That was that. That was the point, wasn't it? Yeah, he'd, he'd been brought in. He'd been brought in not just as a bass player, but as a bass player stroke vocalist. No, well, well they did. So. They did consider, didn't they? They did consider becoming a, a four piece. And I mean, hell knows what the contract said. If it, it, it almost feels <laughs> to me, it's a bit contractual. Um, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe. We sh- we should, of course, for the benefit of our regular listeners, uh, talk a little bit about lay down, stay down, because obviously it's got some pretty good. 
cowbell on it. And yes. um, for for the record, do you want to know what the ultimate cowbell.com score for Lay Down, Stare Down is, gentlemen? We always want to know what the ultimate cowbell score for any song is. Okay. So, Lay Down, Stay Down scores... 3.94878. So it's a it's a reasonable score. Obviously, you know, I, I've got the benchmark here. Don't Fear the Reaper yeah. is at a 4.23376. So, you know, it's 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 decent. It's decent. Yeah. See, I thought I thought we'd be having this cowbell conversation yet to come. I thought you fool no one, start aside two. Mm. Which is which is where incidentally, Richard, you you can explain the word paradiddle. That's my word of the week. <laughs> Fucking hell. I love drummers. I love drummers. What is a paradiddle? Ah, well, have you got all evening? (laughs) Yeah, Steve, don't open that can of worms. I grew up with paradiddles with my brother. And frankly, you don't want to get paradiddling. (laughs) Nobody needs that in their life. We might have to skip you, fool no one. (laughs) Yeah. But Burn is the track of the side for me. But I, I'm, I'm Sail Away is a close second. I, th- I think it's a classic track. And I mean, the whole side, as you say, after that title track, it really does broaden and shift direction, doesn't mm. it, versus what they used to do. Mm. Yeah. I, I got the impression that, you know, because he was just, I mean, Coverdale was just, he just couldn't believe he'd got the gig, did he? So I'd imagine, again, we talk about the dual vocals. What, why why didn't Coverdale pipe up and say, well, I thought I was a singer. I think he was just happy to be in the room. There was a quote from him saying, I'll be honest, it was a tough job when I replaced Jesus Christ as the singer in Deep Purple. <laughs> <laughs> but a reference, which I didn't know, because Gillen actually sang the, the vocals in the original audio release of Jesus Christ Superstar by Andrew Lloyd Webber. So um, a very clever quote from Mr. Governor. Yeah. Um, Shall we Yeah, get on to, to, to side two? So, yeah, as uh, Steve says, so you for no one opens the side, followed by what's going on here, mistreated and a... 200 for me as a side not as strong a side as a side one you feel no one though yeah so i mean that's so not purple isn't it i mean this, this is like cream yeah. this is like cream meets santana <laughs> yeah it's a completely different sound completely different direction it's not even i mean it's nothing you, you would do, you would not describe this as deep purple would you it was so, it was pace being let off the leash a little bit wasn't it wasn't it? it was kind of his brainchild wasn't it the whole thing i believe and um he he, he enjoyed his moment yeah paradiddles fucking hell so come on then let's have it what is a paradiddle i'll tell you but every time my brother opened his mouth <laughs> <I'm like "Switchball." laughs> it's when you when you keep a beat with with both hands or 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 two sticks <laughs> <laughs> left, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right. That's the paradiddle. <laughs> God, I do have the ultimate cowbell uh, score, uh, <laughs> which, which actually it is higher. It is higher. It uh, okay. it scores a three point nine five double a four. Right. So, uh, so, yeah. so the, we worth every, worth every yeah. worth every penny. Of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They they said the, uh, the the rhythm was borrowed. A bit from John Bonham. What about Blackmore's guitar? I don't know. It, it, it even his guitar feels relaxed through this album. I, I, I think um, I think You Feel No One has got a fantastic solo in it. it ultimately, he didn't like the direction, did he? That they were they were going with sort of Stormbringer, and and, uh, and and in the end, it, it kind of led to things things did fall apart. But he got the I got the impression he was enjoying himself on this album. Yeah, but where did he want the band to go? Uh, uh, yeah. So if he didn't want to go this way, because he goes on and he does Rainbow, and then, I mean, fuck me, he does 
Blackmore's Night. I mean, I, which is mad as a box of frogs. So I'm not sure what his problem was with with this. So I mean, the, the middle two tracks on side two. What's going on here and mistreated? I mean, with what's going on here, obviously Hughes is on lead vocals. But I don't know about you two. I felt I could hear the foundations in this song of early White Snake. Obviously, mistreated. It spawned a, a thousand White Snake slow blues songs. But what's going on here as well? I, I felt that yeah, this this. This was the birth of the sound that Coverdale then took forward. It is very bluesy, isn't it? Definitely. But uh, I'm with Ian Pace on this. He called it an album track. And um, I think I think that's what it is to me. In answer to the question, what's going on here? Nothing exceptional. <laughs> Good musicianship. Don't get me wrong. Good musicianship. But yeah, you're just counting down the seconds till mistreated, personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose I see what you're saying. I actually quite like this. Mm-hmm. I actually quite like what I don't dislike doing. it. And so what about mistreated? I mean, it's, it's you know, this is where I'm with Coverdale. He said it sums up what I brought to purple. That slow blues. Is it as good as everybody thinks it is? I, I, it's a very fair question. I, it's a very fair question. I, it's good, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's brilliant. Uh, and there are, you know, plenty of you know, White Snake songs, you know, Blind Man, for example, that I'd far prefer listening to than this one. Steve, mm-hmm. we've just found Richard's cashmere. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's dissing that. I don't think it's a dirge. What? Well, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> Um, no, it's a. I mean, I think it's a. It's a really good blues track, isn't it? And it's a. It's well. It's a. It's a well above average blues track. Let's be honest. Um, it is very Coverdale. I wouldn't put it anywhere near the top of my list for this particular album. I think there are three other tracks that I put above it. But I, I see why people get wet about it. Um, and I can hear Paul Rogers singing this very well. Mm. It doesn't need to. <laughs> no. <laughs> it is great. I think it's a great song. I've got nothing but tenderness for this. I've always liked it. As you say, it was just one of those big hits back in the day and um, one of the, the big purple songs you knew. Just a classic kind of blues builder, isn't it? I love Blackmore's. To the, there's two Blackmore solos in here. <laughs> it's really noteworthy. The fact that the first one is so mellow, you know, rather than showing off which is clearly what he does very well. He just completely sort of strips it back. It's just brilliant judgment of the song. And then a couple of minutes later, he's thinking, oh, for fuck's sake, can you just let me go now? <laughs> and, he just, and he just absolutely goes all flowery and virtuoso yeah. as part of the outro. I just think it's great. I, I still think it's a brilliant song. I do it's, think it's brilliant. I think it's a song that sounds better late, you know, when oh, yeah. the hours. Yeah, yeah, album, yeah. Isn't it? yeah. You yeah. could argue that with the whole album. With, with most yes, of you could. Yeah. Yes, you could. You could. Apart I think, from, I think, yeah. well, yes, yes, yes. Well, let's talk about it. Uh, so <laughs> the the final track, A two hundred. John Lord discovers a synthesizer. I mean, mm. there can't be there can't have been many around at the time. I presume he borrowed it from Kraftwerk or something like that. I mean, it's actually it is actually a bit proggy, isn't it? Mm. It came out of a jam. Uh, Coverdale said I was probably down the pub. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's a weird one, isn't it? I, I just. I don't understand it. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't. I, actually, you've only got eight tracks. This this is, you know, 12.5% of the album. Why, why, why do it? It starts off like a soundtrack from one of those kind of low-budget 1950s sci-fi movies, you mm. know, when you've got that sort of platoon of soldiers just marching off a spaceship or something. It's fucking awful. <laughs> it gets a little bit better. I've just, I've just been listening to episode 50, um, listeners, episode 50, great episode. Um, and we were talking about instrumentals because Atomic Rooster did a couple and you were saying that... You were saying, Richard, that good instru- you'll know a good instrumental because there aren't many and, and, and they grab you by the balls. 
you cited coast to coast, and I think we all pretty much concurred, but this ain't in that league, is it? No. No, this is horrible. No. Well, That's I mean, the other way of saying it. Yeah. I mean, so I'm presuming then we are we are unanimous on our low there, yeah. which is yeah. uh, which is a, a 200, but which gets the high? Steve. Sail away. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Very sail awesome. away all day long. I just, I, I love it. I think it's, a, I think it's a fantastic track. I really do. Yeah, I, I think I do. For me, it is between Burn and Might Just Take Your Life. But I think I would, if I had to choose one to listen to, it would be Might Just Take Your Life. But it might just, it might just be Burn. I can't get a piece of paper between. Yeah. Them. So in, in, and, and uh, yeah, for me, for, for, for this album, the, the title track is still the epic track. I just think Burn is, oh, it, up there with the best songs that uh, Deep Purple ever did okay well there we go that's the first of our epic title track albums uh deep purples burn and so we're going to shuffle a few years on uh to the end of the 1970s and uh the second studio album from uh some trio called motorhead <laughs> mark yeah oh my god oh my god God, what a brilliant album this is. Um, I I didn't know anything about Motorhead when I bought this album back in 1980, it would have been. It was before Ace of Spades came out. I bought it because Motorhead were the biggest thing since sliced bread at the time. I loved Snaggletooth. The Motorhead logo is the coolest logo in the world. <laughs> and, yeah, so I just went and bought it because you that's what you did. You know, you bought the stuff that other people thought was good when you knew no better. And, and I put it on and fucking hell i just i had never heard anything like this in my life let's do some nuts and bolts before we get on and talk about all of that nonsense opening album sleeve notes this is most head it is their well is it their second is it their third strictly speaking it's their third album because their debut album released uh, under united artists the label refused to release because they weren't entirely convinced about Motorhead. So that came out after uh, Bomber as um, On Parole. Uh, so strip, So officially, their debut album is actually their fourth album, and their debut album is the self-titled Motorhead put out uh, on Chiswick Records in 1975. So this is the, well, quotes, difficult second album, nothing difficult about this. It was released on March 24th, 1979. They knocked this out in six weeks, which was five weeks and I think four days longer than it took them to knock out the uh, the debut uh, in 1975. So recorded between December 1978, January 1979, released on bronze. It runs just over 35 minutes. It was produced by Jimmy Miller, more on him later, along with a guy called Neil Richmond, and was recorded at, well, initially recorded at the Roundhouse Studios in London and then mixed at the Sound Development Studios also in London. They spat them out like peas in those days. Bomber came next in 1979. Recording on that began 125 days after Overkill hit the shops and it was released 92 days after that. So they really did burn through them. Well, the personnel, well, if you really need an introduction to them and um, then you're pretty new to this i would suggest ian lemmy kilmister on vocals and bass guitar fast eddie clark on lead guitar phil filthy animal taylor on drums it went to 24 in the charts sold 60,000 units and is 10 tracks long so what can you say about the music well 
First of all, let me ask you a question. Did you find it easy or difficult to find your weakest track? Well, I'm, pro- yeah, I'm probably the, I, numerically, I have found one quite obviously I didn't like as much as the rest, but that, that kind of gives the impression that there's one on here that's shit. There is not. There absolutely no. is not. But there is one I like less than the others. But don't for one minute think I'm, I'm decrying this album. I am not. There's not a weak track on this. In terms of the strongest, there was competition there mm. as well. Drunk. The, the whole of this episode is based on the premise of epic title, title tracks and whether the rest of the album lives up to them. Okay, well, look, let's, let's get on and, and um, listen to it if we're not already doing that. Phil Taylor said that I didn't want to be one of those wankers that had a double bass drum and didn't use it. So what he used to do was he'd go into the rehearsal rooms early before Lemmy and Eddie Clark turned up and he'd practice using both drums. And one day, Lemmy and Eddie Clark walked in and uh, he stopped and they were like, no, 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 keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's how this track was was born. And everyone thinks this is a really fast track, but actually it's not a really... His drums are fast, but the track itself is actually quite measured. It's really brutal, but it's quite measured. And what I love about this track are three things. Lemmy's vocals, I don't think Lemmy has ever sounded better than he does on this album. And secondly, Fast Eddie Clark's guitar solo is absolutely fucking brilliant. It just wails. It's amazing. And then it's the end of it that does it for me because it goes, it stops, and then those drums come back in. And they don't just do it once, they do it twice. And you, and I'm absolutely wasted by the end of this as a 15-year-old. Absolutely <laughs> fantastic track. Brilliant track, brilliant album. And you think, well, they can't top that. Hmm. I mean, this was a game changer, wasn't it? Yeah, Lars Ulrich just harks back to, to this track. That was his inspiration. Double bass was just brilliant. And the, yeah, the false endings. And it just, just grabs you by the throat and, and, and takes you off again. I'll echo everything you said. This is a 10. This is, this is, this is one of the best heavy metal songs ever, ever written. Agree, Steve? No, 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 I'm going to struggle to match that hyperbole. But um, it's interesting you mentioned Ulrich because kind of those false endings, Metallica kind of used that kind of thing themselves, didn't they? They kind of worked that into a lot of the stuff that they did. Um, I love the fact that it just keeps on going. You don't expect a motor track to last five minutes, not at this stage of their um, of their being. Iconic, you just got to look at the number of bands that have played this live, that have covered it, reworked it, been named after it, for fuck's sake. It's clearly a song which is about as important as any at the sort of thrashy end of the 
genre that we love. You can't overstate that. It's a watchword for something overkill, isn't it? And and if we're if we're over egging it, it's just such an amazing track. It just keeps on. You want a breather, and it just no. It, and you just don't and and it's just it's not a 10 out of 10 song because lemmy sings and then that's hey that's me so nothing ever will from their back catalogue but um it's a brilliant song it's, hey, it's a stunning opener steve steve so so hang on could you just could you just say that again <laughs> i know where this is going <laughs> yes i i stand by it I, st- I stand by it. Lemmy, Lemmy's voice isn't for me. Okay, so as, have, as, have as you others. have you taken marks off of this track then because of his voice? Well, I've not given it a 10, <laughs> but I wouldn't have done anyway. No. Do, do, have you scored any 10s on any other albums, Steve? To, what, on this episode? <laughs> <laughs> I might. Yeah. Uh, did, uh, then, okay. did, 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 vo- did voices play a part in, in that score? Yes, absolutely. A, a voice I'd love. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. okay. So, all right, yeah. So, yeah, but we've already dealt with David Coverdale. So, who else? I haven't. I haven't given, I haven't given any tens on this show. No. Let me just make that abundantly clear. I'm not going to be quizzed by you fuckwits on bloody Lemmy's voice, all right? Well, oh, dear, well, dear, dear. Seriously, if, if, if we were dealing with any other album in the third part of this podcast, we probably wouldn't be giving you a hard time about voices, would I we? I can't believe what a fucking can of worms I've opened just by simply saying, <laughs> we'll do Exodus bonded by blood. It should have been a straightforward task. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, after the questionable vocal abilities of Lemmy uh, on Overkill... Um, yeah, you do. You do ask yourself whether um, whether the band can actually deliver that kind of standard of song um, through the rest of the album. And although I don't think it matches the title track, I mean, "Stay Clean" is just another fantastic song. It just bounces along, gets you by the head, and bangs it against the wall. I just, and I love the vocal performance on that. I mean, I, I'm a yeah, I am a big Lemmy fan, so you know, I don't I don't hear the flaws that you hear, Steve. Although. I understand why it is a bit Marmite, but I think his vocal on this album is absolutely perfect. I mm. can't imagine anybody else doing it. No, well, I get that because, well, but then again, the association with, is Lemmy with Motorhead, isn't it? You, you probably genuinely, even with a man of, with your imaginative skills, would struggle to imagine it because that's all you've ever known, isn't it? I mean, that is that yeah. is Motorhead, I guess. But wouldn't question his bass playing skills. You're not supposed to like bass solos, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's like um, it's like Joy Division on speed. Um, stay clean. I absolutely love his work on that. People have said that his bass was turned down by his choice. Um, his bass is down a bit in the mix across the whole album. That's how he liked it to be. I don't know, but that solo is fantastic. It uh, is in, in, in the in the grand scheme of bass solos, which aren't the greatest things. But and if if it's down in the mix, I'd hate to think what high in the mix is. Yeah, you can hear that Rickenbacker throughout this album. Mm. He felt that the whole album could have sounded better didn't he he felt they really did did rush the finish and it could have been more layered it's one of those albums yes it could have sounded better but then it wouldn't have sounded like overkill um yeah, i don't, I don't think, think i don't think also don't think... I, well i was going to say i wonder if it's because would vic mail have got because we love vic mail to bits would he have got this would he have got this sound at this time out of this album that jimmy miller did i don't know because this mm. the whole the, the whole point about overkill is the breadth that sort of it's almost anti-motorhead isn't it in the breadth of the album. Mm. So much going on, the punk and the metal, Christ, you know, the Hawkwind references, of which there are plenty. Yeah. Well, more than a couple. It's a, it's a kind of merging of the times, isn't it? It's very 79 to that 
degree. And, I, and I, I, I don't know enough about Miller. I think the sound he's got is brilliant. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Miller was considered by the band at the time to be the fourth member of Motorhead. Mm. Okay. Um, he was he was one of four producers who was presented to as a list to Lemmy, who could produce the album. He chose Miller because he was the only one that he'd heard yes. of for his work with <laughs> yeah, for his work with um, with Rolling Stones. And Jimmy Miller was a was a smackhead. He was a heroin addict who had cleaned up when he did this album and got I mean I think I think actually the production on this is I kind of like the dirty production yeah and I'm wondering whether it was actually deliberate mm-hmm. it's a very different experience for the band doing Overkill to when they did Bomber less than well, seven months later with mm. Jimmy Miller who was completely out of it and relapsed was back on smack Phil Taylor talks about he he not turn up to the studio for half a day or maybe even a day. And when he did, he came up with these marvellous excuses. The band watched him get out of a cab outside the studio. It was snowing on the day. <laughs> he got out of the car, rolled in the snow, and then came into the studio claiming he'd been struck in a snowdrift. And then was going, <laughs> we just fucking watched you rolling in the snow on the ground outside the door. I think he got, absolutely got them in this. This, this for me... Is is Motorhead? It's it's a better album for me than Ace of Spades every day of the week. I mean, stay clean, of course. It's it, it, it's allegedly not about drugs or al- alcohol or staying clean that way, but just being true to yourself and listening to your parents. <laughs> <laughs> sound sound advice for children there from Mister Kilmister. And it's got um, I mean, it's got it just it just goes from one high to the next. This album for me, and and the. I have to say that um, for me, the load doesn't happen until side um, side two, but it also includes "I'll Be Your Sister," um, which has got the most nonsensical lyrics you'll ever hear. Although lyrically, I don't think Lemmy said, didn't he, that um, they probably made sense to him at the time, but over the years, he <laughs> really couldn't say what he was on about. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> He wanted Tina Turner to sing it, didn't he? Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. She, 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 obviously, good. I mean, I can, I can imagine it, and um, I think it would have been fascinating. I think it would have. I liked her. I've always liked her vocal style. She could have done something with this. You know, I think <laughs> it's the groove and the build, and it's um, it's a great song. It really is. You can hear in "I'll Be Your Sister" Lemmy's fifties and sixties rock and roll influences. Yeah, can't definitely. You? So yeah. The, the one, the one thing, that's a rock and roll band. The one, yeah. yeah. Well, the one thing I thought was you can imagine Chuck Berry singing I'll Be Your Sister. <laughs> yes. So to bring the album to a close, we've got Capricorn. Completely yeah, well, that's, 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 the, that's the extraordinary thing. Isn't it? Where's that come from, you know? That's, that's, that's the sign of the sort of maturity of the band a little bit, isn't it? Absolutely different, isn't it? Mm. This is one you're referring to, Stephen. I mean, harking back to uh, to Hawkwind. I mean, it's spacey, mm. it's atmospheric, it's produced differently. I mean, they, they, the, the the whole sound of it is different from the other tracks on on the first side. So I think they deliberately produced it uh, this way. Here's here's one of the tracks that pushes Overkill close. I absolutely love Cap. Yeah, it's one of several tracks that for me pushes Overkill close. I have to say, it's just so so atmospheric, isn't it? And his vocal performance is completely different. I think it, we're talking about Lemmy, so there's a, there's a kind of there's a, there is a range. I get that, Steve. But yes. it is it, compared to everything else on the album, it's a much more stripped back performance. It's very well arranged. It's a lot of cleverness in there. I mean, it's yeah. it, it's almost a little bit above the Motorhead average, and, and I, we'll see that again on side two. It's such it's such a refreshing. This is their high water mark. This is that you're absolutely right, Mark. You know, I love Ace of Spades. This is their high water mark. I have no doubt. What do we think about um, 
track one side twos no class yeah, well apart from it being a schools out ripoff it, it's sitting there in the mid uh, in the middle yeah i mean it, it's good but it's not up there with um for example track two side two they played it a lot and they it's a motorhead staple there's there's some other you know, real difference in complexity on this album this one not so much it's more straight ahead i think yeah i think you'd expect that wouldn't you at least one or two of those i mean it weighs in it under 240 doesn't it and it's almost as i think you know I they're going to do want, it i think you'd want one or two of those wouldn't you yeah <laughs> i agree yeah it's mercy much ahead of the merciless isn't it they, they, they could do it longer but why bother let's just fucking crack on smack it out and move on <laughs> I mean, they had it up their sleeve a while, didn't they? They'd written it about the year before or something. They'd, they'd well, paraded say, a lot of this album live, didn't they, before... Um, yeah, and I was about to say, Lemmy said, one of the advantages of this period was they toured these songs mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. so they were pretty tight. Which presumably they um, wouldn't have done with Bomber then, given the timescale. Well, no, precisely. Uh, and I think that shows, actually. I mean, I love Bomber, but mm-hmm. it's, um, it's an inferior album to yeah. this, I think. I mean, the scores, when we get to it, yeah, may... Yeah betray that but um, mm. in my head it is at yeah. least but you prefer obviously you prefer um damage case oh yeah it's it's, it's uh, one of my favorites i mean it's got the lyrics are just classic lemmy the groove the bass uh, and again the you talked earlier about about overkill eddie clark's guitar work on this album is phenomenal and, and damage case has got a fantastic solo Anything to add? No, not really. No, I like Damage Case. I like Tear You Down. I like Limb from Limb. But um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll reserve my fire for um, the track nine on on okay. uh, on this album, which I love to bit. So, just as a, a kind of an aside, really, Tear You Down uh, is my low point on the album. Yeah. No spoiler alerts. And I think it's probably my least favourite track on the album because it wasn't actually recorded in these sessions. It's actually a direct lift. Uh, this version of Tear You Down was the B-side to Louis Louis. And um, so it was recorded long time before these sessions. And when <laughs> Lemmy was, was asked, you know, you're in the studio, you know, you've got the opportunity to re-record it. Why didn't you? And he says, I can make up some rubbish about vibe and attitude and how we could never match what had already been done. But the truth is we couldn't be fucking bothered. <laughs> it just seemed like too much hard work to go back and redo the song just for the sake of it. So we decided to leave it well alone. And I think that just sums most head up, doesn't it? He yeah. is a contrary old bugger, isn't he? He really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a bit of piano in there, isn't there? Or was it just my yeah. ears? No, there is. No, there there is. Yeah. All right. So look, we'll, we'll, we'll get to limb from limb. Yeah. What's your problem with Metropolis? No, no problem. No, no, no. Is is oh, quite the reverse. Quite the reverse. Oh, you it's, said you said you're saving your fire. So I was thinking, oh my yeah, God, no, 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 no. My joy. No, no, no. Think, think. Sperm fire. I'm about to shoot my okay. load, my friend. Okay. Yeah. It's um. <laughs> it, no, I love Metropolis. This is this is side two's Capricorn, isn't it? It's um. Yeah. Kind of bit, yeah. Almost yeah. a bit of 60s psychedelia, but an old school Sabbath riff. That's a crazy. That's a crazy kind of mix, you know. The solo from Clark. It's so stoner, you know. It's almost hypnotic. It really mm. is. And um, oh, to me, it's every bit as good as, as Capricorn. And the kind of track that you know, when you don't expect it, when you just had no class and damage case and tear you down, the kind of track that you weren't expecting, and that makes it even better. Do you know the history of it? Nope. They were a song short on the album, and um, Lemmy had been out 
either a few days previously or a few weeks previously and he'd been to the cinema and watched or 1920s film silent film the same name went home banged it out brought it into the studio the next morning and um and that was it and the this guitar solo by eddie clark mm. is him warming up right. um, <laughs> and he finished warming up and he, he went, turned to lemmy and jimmy miller and went okay i'm ready to do the take now and he went and they went it's all right we got it mate. Yeah. brilliant amazing solo on it yeah yeah it's uh Oh. It's, I mean, it's a very mature song, isn't it? And yeah, uh, what an album. What an album. I don't remember Eddie Clark doing anything like that on Waiting for the Roar, I must admit. But um... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Limb from Limb, uh, it's just, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's all right. I don't feel particularly... You know, strongly about it one way or the other to be honest I, I like it I, I think it's, it's lovely as a as an album closer this lovely great big slow groove to finish I mean it is Motet du ZZ Top I can't remember what song they were accused of ripping off was it I don't know was it Tush or, or LaGrange I, I can't remember but it's just got this lovely dirty bass and guitar all the way through it it scores highly for me so it's, it's a lovely closer me too oh, it, 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 it takes off as well doesn't it that's the other point about it isn't it you think it's five minutes yeah. long it's going to struggle at that pace but then they kind of pick it up and kick on and it's um some again some wonderful bass work from ben from um, from lemmy but i think it's a dazzling finish to the album i really like it okay highs and lows <laughs> well given about three of them the same score um yeah damage case i'm not bothered about the, the one i really love and we haven't really talked about is um i won't pay your price it's the that that sounds like the kind of song that ZZ Top wanted to do. Forget limb from limb, it just rocks along. One of the album's absolute gems, as far as I'm concerned. And I cannot believe they hardly ever play it live. Mm-hmm. I, I love the way I would pay your price starts with <laughs> Lemmy saying, "I'm so drunk." <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it is. I mean, and, and you know, we got we got to doff our hats to them again. I mean, it's got this lovely sort of walking pace, and hasn't it that dum 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 dum? Mm-hmm. You know, so. I'm afraid it's you know it, it, it. I won't pay your price. Is heavy metal, Chaz and Dave. Um, yeah. <laughs> so your highs and lows, Richard? Uh, yeah, I think I think tear you down. I mean, nothing's got a low. You know, I'm gonna tear you down. I'm, I'm gonna make your toenails toenails curl. I mean, the, the the lyrics throughout this album, the swagger of this album is is just immense. But yeah, as, as said earlier, epic title track. You have nailed the brief, Mark. It's uh, <laughs> overkill. Is just immense and uh, i think broadly speaking i'm with you i think it, it is tear you down which is a, a sort of a high low and uh, an overkill i just don't think i will ever forget what i experienced the first time i put that track on it is one of the all-time great heavy metal albums um which brings us on nicely to exodus steve <laughs> <laughs> That's right, from one great band to another. Yes, Exodus Bondage. So we had a couple of contributions from Flotsam and Jetsam, as our regular listeners will know, the band who gave Metallica a bass player, and so to Exodus, the band who gave Metallica their lead guitarist, of course, Kirk Hammett, um, who was an Exodus original. Opening album sleeve notes. This is Bonded by Blood, their debut album, released on April 25, 1985, recorded in two weeks in July 1984. Begs the question, why did it take, what's that, nine months to uh, to get out? We'll come to that in a bit. On the Torrid label, I think they're a New York, New York label, Torrid. It's the best part of 41 minutes long, and it was produced by a guy called Mark Whittaker, um, who was a bit of a sort of taskmaster. They wanted someone to come in and tell them what was what, because they were young and they were raw and they were pissed and stoned, and um, and, and, he got, and he got the sound out. 
them, and he did it well, at Prairie Sun Studios in Cotati, California, just north of San Francisco, hence the Bay Area. And that's what we're talking about here, Bay Area Thrash. This was their first album. The next album was Pleasures of the Flesh. Charts? Nah, but I, I doubt it. There were... Um, and there's nine tracks on it. Five tracks on side one, four tracks on side two. The title track is obviously Bonded by Blood. It's the opening track. It's not the best track off the album. The lineup. Okay. Paul Baloff on vocals, Gary Holt on lead guitar, Rick Hunot on lead guitar, the H team, Rob McKillop on bass, Tom Hunting on drums. Listen, let's just cut to the chase, okay? <laughs> I could wax lyrical about this all night, and 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 I'm tempted to. Should we just talk about Paul Baloff? Because I mean, I think that's going to be the ter- the determining factor when it comes to your scores. I, listen, I love Exodus to bits. I absolutely adore Exodus, and I love Paul Baloff. But that's going to be the talking point. So can we just do it now, please? Well, we can start now. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, then. Well, Hand on hearts. Hammett rated him, didn't he, and, and, pull, yeah. and pulled him in. Look, he's uh, he's fairly limited, isn't he, as <laughs> as a vocalist. I think even the band admitted, uh, but then replaced him with somebody who wasn't a much better vocalist. <laughs> yeah, for me, positives about it. I, I think I think some of the songwriting on this, the the playing, the techniques, the riffery. There's some really really good stuff here but the limitations of his vocal ability i think have impacted uh, this as an album even though this this originally was set for a release date somewhere around the same time wasn't it as Killamore and people you're know, holding it up there and in, in, in you know this 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 would be this would have been bigger i don't know because even though he was yet to develop as a vocalist what made Killamore that much different was not only the power, the musicianship, the riffery, but the fact that more or less James Hetfield could actually sing. Even on Kill 'em All. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I think that's one of those kind of nostalgic things, isn't it? That's one of those kind things to say about an album that, you know, it could have gone toe to toe with, with Kill 'em All. But I think we know the truth, don't we, on that? Mark, I mean, you, you've made it abundantly clear. He's, he's not your cup of tea, is he? Actually, I mean, I, I've, I've been sort of playing to the gallery a bit with the. <laughs> With the with the Baloff nonsense, but no, he's not my type uh, in terms of you know singers. I think I disagree with this, Richard. I think Steve Souza can sing, and I think yeah. I love I love kind of fabulous disaster era Exodus, and I think you can hear a lot of what they would become in this album. I, in the end, I had to do what I had to do with. I think it was Rage Against the Machine. And I had to take, score the music and I had to score the vocals to give a track score. And I, I'm probably not giving very much away when I say that if you, if I'm, if I were to score it purely on the music, I think it's scored a 7.4. I score it purely on the vocals, it's, it's a sub five. And, and the fact is, for whatever reason, you know, it's, it's not his fault that he's in the band. You know, he's joined the band and he's been allowed to sing on an album. He's done his best. Uh, unfortunately, his best isn't very good. And, you know, that we have listened to worse vocalists. I mean, what's his name? Buchner on fucking Earth Crisis. I mean, I'd still prefer <laughs> to listen to Paul Ballard. So, no, he's not my type. But I've really enjoyed the album, Steve. I, you know, I, I get why, why you love it. I've managed to sort of almost ignore his vocal performance and just enjoy the music for what it is. The music deserves a better vocalist, but he paid the price for it because they recognised it. I think they knew that they were never going to be commercially successful with him on the microphone. Yeah, no two ways about it. They're very nice about him. I mean, you know, retrospectively, I mean, they're... uh... You know they're 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 very fond of um, of the part he had to play in the inception of this. I think a phenomenal band. I mean he's he's he died 
very sadly, as a young man. I think he was only in his 40s. But, I mean, Holt's always said about off that it's a testament to Paul that after recording one album throughout his entire life, he's rightfully considered a legend. How many people can you say that about? Mm-hmm. And it's true. He is a legend and, and Exodus fans, and I definitely number myself as one. And like you, Mark, I loved what Sousa did on Pleasures of the Flesh and to, uh, yeah, more so with Fabulous Disaster. But I just, um, this is just absolutely of a time, this album. Do you not agree? It's just, mm-hmm. it's just, yeah. it's just beauty. There's a beauty to it. You know, it's savage, it's brutal, it's relentless, built on on compromising riffs but really accessible riffs um, and, and you, you you alluded to that Richard I mean you can happily bang your head to any of this mm. um, and I love the theatre in his voice and I always have done I unapologetically do and because of that and I'm not winding you two up I, I do I genuinely do and, and I think this is as good an example of, the, of a style of music that I adore it wasn't a period which lasted long I don't think but Bonded by Blood is to me an absolute gem in my book it's, it's not quite up there with Doomsday and Kill Em All Killing is my business, say seven churches, my possessed. But it's that—that's the—that's the kind of window we're in, and I—I I think it's a priceless piece of work. I really do. I do think, though, if you like theatre and a vocalist's voice, I, you know, I'd recommend you go out and try some Warfare because I think they. You know, <laughs> I thought you were going to say <laughs> fucking meatloaf. Jesus. Nine tracks on Bonded by Blood, um, five on track one and four on track two. They trump the other two bands that we've done in this episode because their opening track is indeed the title track, Bonded by Blood, but they, then their second track is the name of the band. They throw that one in there as well. So you've got Bonded by Blood followed by Exodus and Bonded by Blood is just a wonderful calling card. It's just the unmistakable sound and style of Exodus with a song with a fucking mean riff. Um, and it's fast. It gets faster at the back end. You come and think they've almost... Have they lost control a little bit of that? Was it meant to go that quick? Towering solo, gang chorals, Balos voice, it's all in there. It's all in that one track. I was going to say, there is Exodus. There isn't. There is Bonded by Blood, because, of course, we only had the one album um, with Balos, followed by Exodus, which is it's almost like a sequel. Um, and then you get the change up with And Then There Were None, kind of a bit more chuggy, before and A Lesson in Violence, which is quite simply one of the greatest tracks ever written by anyone. And then Metal Command finishes off side one. So there you go. That's my little snapshot shot of side one uh, some thoughts Richard have you ever heard Steve talk about the amount of hyperbole that we <laughs> that we come out with have you, has he ever mentioned that <laughs> yeah we do we do, we, we do go violence. on A, A Lesson in Violence is yes. one of the greatest songs ever written full stop yes Any, yes uh, okay yeah I mean uh, this, yes I mean <laughs> 
I mean, just yes. <laughs> I do. Have, I have. A, I've got a question though. I mean, a serious. And well, not. I mean, how can you? This podcast is never serious, but it's a semi-serious question. So, in the, this episode is about epic title tracks. Mm-hmm. And do you think "Bonded by Blood" is an epic title track because it is epically good? Or do you think it's an epic track because it is so revered? I mean, it's the most played song live. Yeah. And is it because it's so revered by their fan base or is it actually the quality of the song? Uh, I think I just misread the brief. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm overthinking it. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'm slightly tongue-in-cheek. It's a great song. It is a great song. And it's, it, it's a wonderful calling card. It just is because it says everything about this period of Exodus and I think it's brutal I know I think it's a brilliant track I do it's probably my third favourite on the album I mean in fact in fact I'm looking at my scores it is my third favourite with a high score of eight and a half um, so yeah I love it to bits it's among my higher scores I, I mean epic here eight and a half but, Rich certainly no? well, well we'll see Steve we'll see uh, <laughs> Music, music certainly. Epic here takes on another reason, meaning, doesn't it? Because I mean, this was you know with the when I first heard the song and the lyrics, you know, all about sort of blood on the stage, and uh, I thought, oh no, this is another one like uh, you know, Bad Steve is coming, and they're just announcing <laughs> their arrival live. Um, but but it is actually about was it that place Ruthie's in Ruthie's in where they used to play a lot, and basically there were just bottles and glass flying everywhere, and and there really was blood all over the stage I think it's this is a song for their fans isn't it there's a there's a real real connection uh, between them and and the people that love them so I, I get that I, I really yeah. get that and I think the, I think the lyric murder in the front row is that is the name of a of a of a video look of a DVD the video how old am I um of a, of a, of a some, something out there on the interweb worldwide thing um about the bay area about the bay area thrash scene of the, of the time you know so you know clearly bonded by blood as a track is um is a kind of cornerstone of that movement i think murder in the front row is also the song that sophie ellis bexter really wanted to record <laughs> um, but, I, but i do I, the, the lyrics on this the, there is one hilarious moment on the lyrics on this track which is it's the opening verse and it's black magic writes on this black <laughs> evil night right begin with the slice of the blade metal and blood come together as one on lookers they gasp in dismay not horror mind or outrage or, or repulsion or abhorrence dismay they're just slightly disappointed <laughs> in, in it oh dear <laughs> Yeah, it was. Oh, listen, oh, that's not good, is it? They had no money. They were in the studio for less than a fortnight. It had to rhyme. Get on, get out. I mean, you know, the budget was tight. I've got no. Problem. So, I mean, if you're picking holes in fucking lyrics, Jesus, this could be a long. This could be a long twenty minutes or so. No, I'm not going to. But that one did make me giggle. <laughs> Highlight of side one for me is, and then there were none. It's the and it's track of the album for me. me I think the, yeah. the the riffs are fantastic. Fantastic on it, and and the solos. Uh, so, yeah, it, I mean, it, the, the music is so good, even Baloff can't ruin it. You know, <laughs> mm. it's a well, bit chuggier, isn't there's it? There's praise for you. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what that that Black Knight's a bloody good song that even Ian Gillan couldn't ruin. <laughs> 
I, we can't keep going on like this because it's you, you're breaking my heart. What I would say is you're both wrong because, as I say, a lesson in violence, as I've intimated, is off the scale. I, I do love and then there were none, and I love Metal Command, which once it stops trying to sound like ton of bricks at the start, Metal Church fans will agree. It, it's a, it's a super speedy finish. It's a great piece yeah. of work, but lesson in violence. It's the meanness. It's the speed. It's the bridges. It's the fills, and I and the best, and I mean the best chorus on the album. And there are so many goodies to choose from on this fight for you what you believe to be right crushed with all your might i laugh at the pitiful etc etc beautifully written beautifully scanned and i'll say it's beautifully sung because if baloff's distinctive style ever excels it's probably in a song extolling the virtues of violence because <laughs> um I, I just think it that that chorus lesson in violence and then it carries on they run from the fire eyes nothing can save them now. just genius and those yeah you know, oh, so I don't know. So Flotsam and Jetsam, right? mm-hmm. which you when we when we did um, it was the Thrash was episode, wasn't it? It was the Thrash was, episode because yeah. we did episode... uh, we did Testament and we and I chose Overkill. That's yeah, so it was episode six, Doomsday for the Deceiver, mm-hmm. and you described Flotsam and Jetsam as having three speeds: fast, faster, <sighs> and fucking fast. Yes. Now, yeah. one of my big issues with this album, which I, I don't with have, the fast. Um, uh, well, they dispense with the fast and the faster. Yeah. Uh, actually. And I'm just, whereas I think there's quite a lot of layers and depth to Pleasures of the Flesh and Fabulous Disaster, mm-hmm. I find this all a bit one-dimensional. And the band knew it. And the band knew it. And they, yeah. I mean, I... And, I, and is that, yeah. but is that just money? And you know, and in, you know, in terms of it's a debut album by a band that's you know quite young, and they yeah you know, they're not being given you know, it's on a label that isn't exactly mainstream, and they don't have the budget to have a producer who would know how to construct these songs in such a way to give them that depth, or is it just that actually what they really wanted to do was just go out and bang their heads for forty one minutes? I think you I think you've hit the nail on the head because I mean the, the the next two albums were also on combat as well, so there were no um there was no great sense that. You know, they were going to make a fortune from any of the stuff they were writing. I just think I'm, I'm with you. They were young kids who arrived with that brilliant sound of, you know, in, in, initially Hammett, Holt and Hugh Nolt, this, this great sort of guitar force, and um, which was, you know, we lost one, obviously, to Metallica. And yeah, they just wanted to go out and play and make some noise. Um, they started off as a covers band, as a, a you know, new ever British heavy metal covers band. They weren't ahead of their time, but they, they were of this time. And yes, they wanted to go out and play fast, show they could do it. But I still think there's some great musicianship. But the interesting thing is, we, if we flip the album, over onto side two. Flotsam and Jetsam are great at throwing in those little sort of interludes and little slow pieces in guitar. And there is one on side two at the start of No Love, the second track, where they do kind of, you know, it's a little bit of minstrel guitar. Fuck me. I mean, it's hardly a folk song. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the other thing they do on side two is they give us Deliverers to Evil, which is seven minutes long and it's kind of a, a sort of um, prelude to what you would hear with, for example, tracks like Pleasures of the Flesh um, and Like Father, Like Son, which would come later. And you know, they're great song um, mm. the pair of them absolute monsters and that's the type of song they would go on to do you know multi-layered stuff and No Love and Deliverers to Evil a sandwich between um, this piece of genius Piranha and Strike of the Beast which is a kind of speed metal send off proper no nonsense stuff so side two four tracks rather than five is actually probably the more interesting of the two just because it shows a- another side to them perhaps I mean <laughs> Piranha right it's I really couldn't <laughs> this is my last thing I've got to say about his vocals right 
<laughs> I just couldn't get past his vocals on this. And I mean, he, he I realized, I suddenly realized that he's actually got four notes. He sings four notes. He's got a low note, a medium note, a high note, and a scream note. And, and that's it. And generally, he sings a line of each. And I just felt what well, on Piranha, he, he went, he was just allowed to go completely over the top. No love alike, actually. Um, okay. I, I think riff wise, I, I can see why that was, why people say it was a contender kill them all I, I think there's some fantastic riffs on that on stuff like Delirious to Evil did they really believe this Satan stuff I mean the cover <laughs> um, you know and, and, and they did they talk about what were they one of the yeah, stimuli for so you know what became that you know death you know fast death metal didn't find out whether they really believed some uh, some of that stuff that they were writing and singing no i'm not sure the album cover was just an accident they um they they kind of employed some old hippie which is why gary holt says he fucking hates hippies to um do the first album cover and it just didn't work so they got a guy in called rick ferraro who did the cover painting? I don't know knew much about it. Just rushed it out. I think that was part of the reason why the delay was in the um, in the release of the album. If anyone doesn't know it, it's a picture of a couple of Siamese devils. Is it controversial? I don't know. It's certainly not. It's not, it's the not best pleasant piece of album is it? cover, is it? It's, it's not the best piece of work. It's, it's not menacing, and it's kind of almost slightly silly. Un- mm, yeah, it, 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 sort of out of kilter with with, the, with what the album does, which is brutal. I mean, to, to the extent that Piranha, you know, I, w- I wouldn't go in the water for a fortnight after listening to that. I was fucking terrified. I mean, I just. Think I was scared. You know, I think it's a brilliant song. Um, but I get your point about no love. Deliverance to Weevil, I just think, is just, you know, the way they can make thrash sound different. And, I mean, it's got it's got a last seven minutes. You've got to put plenty of layers in when you're doing it at the speed they're doing it. Um, mm. I, so there, there's a lot of singing about evil. I just think that's where Baloff is at his best because he just sounds evil. <laughs> One thing, uh, I mean, given which we'll talk about it, given it was it, this was their first album, um, was this departure of Hammett to Metallica. Because mm. I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I found very little on really explaining how and why. But for me, it look, appears that, that one common factor here is Mark Whitaker. So he yes. was the band's manager in the early days. Then right. he becomes Metallica's tour manager. They're having the difficulties time. with Miss Mustaine and mm-hmm. Hammett gets the call. And then, but then Exodus bring him back to produce this yeah and he has a role in some of the songwriting as well yeah no, and he's regarded as an absolute integral part of the band I know which kind of well, shows A no hard feelings but B that they thought Kirk was dispensable Hammett was dispensable that you know, they mm, had a, mm. a good enough band to do what they wanted to do don't, you're right though Richard it's difficult to find to nail down any kind of honest you know retrospective version of what actually happened I don't think there was any rancor any ill feeling with any mm, of them mm. they, they all still talk very affectionately about each other and they're all friends yeah. So, yeah. so there you go. That's um, Bonded by Blood by Exodus. As I say, I just think it's um, Baloff. Yeah, you wouldn't want Sinatra singing this. And um, I've, I've got absolutely no problem with... I've got absolutely no problem with um, with Paul Baloff. I do like Steve Souza. I think I'm with Mark. Disagree with Richard on that. But this is this is just such an important album. And again, I'm you know slightly overstating. Maybe I'm overstating it, but I, I do think it's an important album. I think it's one of those sort of top ten of really significant pieces of thrash work from that period. And I would always say that. So let's have some highs and lows because I dare say you've got a few lows between you. <laughs> Well, we we didn't too too much about Strike of the Beast, which actually get that gets my low. It's a complex riff. It's too fast. I can understand why people do like it. 
but it just didn't do uh, that much for me at all. And as I said earlier, and then there were none. Uh, I think is a really, really good track. Uh, and not for the first time this evening. I'm I'm with Richard on both of those. So Strike of the Beast is my low, and um, and then there were none is my high. Like I say, I've really enjoyed the album. I just I just think poor old Paul Baloff. You're right. It is a really, really important album. If we were marking these albums on how important or not they are in that kind of timeline, mm-hmm. then this would score a lot higher than it does. But because we're not marking it on that we're marking it on how it sounds mm. now i just think oh, musically it's yeah it's so inferior to anything else the band did and and i can't get away from that fact okay i, I like the rawness of it and that's what to me stands it apart from the next two albums and i do love the next two albums but um i just yeah it's that rawness it's that that earthiness that kind of originality which i like most anyway strike of the beast for me I, yeah there's me love my speed but i do think it's perhaps the most limited of the of the nine tracks on here um so it's got my lowest score and yet the second most played Life. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I get that. I mean, it's a, it's it's just an absolute natural, isn't it? A mosh pit. I mean, it's just an absolute yeah. natural. I mean, why wouldn't you indulge in that if you're if you're an Exodus show? And I can't believe I'm the only one who's saying it, but Chuck of the album, um, a lesson in violence. I have no doubt it's um, on many a playlist. So there you go, bonded by blood um, from Exodus, the third of our albums on this um, well title tracks episode of Enter Sad Men podcast. We're now going to go and score these and see where these three wind up in our Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. So, right, here we go. We've done the scores uh, and I'll start with Deep Purple's Burn, our first of our three epic title track albums. And, uh, yeah, well, track-wise, the, the high scorers, not surprisingly, the, the title track, but we were pretty much unanimous in our scoring of Sail Away. We all gave it a nine. So, actually, that's the top-scoring track of uh, of the album. Uh, the low-scoring, again, we were pretty unanimous in uh, in A200, the funny experiment on the end of the album, which uh, only overall scored uh, five. And that re- resulted in following... Total album scores, Steve gave it a 7.31, Mark a 7.69, and me, um, actually, Mark and I gave it exactly the same score, a 7.69 as well, and uh, that gave Burn an overall of 7.5625. Mark, how did the uh, rubbish singer and uh, his uh, three-piece get on? <laughs> uh, yeah, Lemmy and Co. did all right, didn't they? Um, so, again, going through the, the highs, well, Overkill did turn out to be an epic title track because it was the highest scoring from the three of us. Uh, Richard and I both gave it uh, tens, and uh, Steve gave it a nine. <clears throat> so, yeah, it shows you how the high regard that Steve holds the track in. And, uh, yeah, and the low, well, the lowest scoring track on the album was Tear You Down, which scored a, well, scored a seven because we all gave it a seven. Um, so that gave uh, individual album scores of 7.7 from Steve, 8.87 from me because I love it. And an 8.15 from Richard for an overall average album score of 8.24. So I, I suspect that'll do rather well. Richard, uh, sorry, Steve, what about Exodus? Um, yeah, well, obviously I didn't understand the epic bit about the title track because um, I just love the title track, Bonded by Blood, which therefore was only the fourth highest scoring track off the album, um, <laughs> trumped by, um, well, and then there were none, but a couple of others. Anyway, so there you go. But the best track on the album, as I explained, not just a few minutes ago, was A Lesson in Violence. 
terms, which Mark, bizarrely and incorrectly, one would imagine, has given a five out of ten. I presume he'll correct that. When he comes around to amending it, we'll, we'll come back to you with a proper score. But as it stands, <laughs> Mark's pitiful total for this fine opus is a 6.3. Richard, barely any less curmudgeonly, has given it a 6.9. Um, and I love it to bits. Make no apology for that. And scored it an 8.05 for an overall album score. And um, to be honest, I'm quite relieved that it's, that it's got a 7 by its name and not a 6 um, of 7.09. So, yeah, not going to be uh, not going to be challenging the top the top reaches. But as I say, chuffed a bit that it's not got a 6. Um, so let's see where it is. Let's see where it falls in uh, the Hall of Fame. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Here we go. The Hall of Fame. 213 albums in this bitch right now. I mean, that's what we, 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 we've been through some fair old vinyl over the months. Yeah, so let's start with how we finish the scores, which was my album Exodus Bonded by Blood, which has wound up at 163. And if I'm honest, given some of the WhatsApp conversations that had happened over the last fortnight, I'll take, I'll take 163. I fancy it'd be done a lot further than that with its score of 7.08, which is, yeah, that's a long way clear of nuclear assault you prop this league table up so from from the bottom end of the league table we got to 93 to where we find burn deep purple sandwich between high infidelity res speedwagon and epitaphs outside the law um and the pick of the three it's not a contest it's not an inner episode contest but um yeah other three albums that we did this evening motorheads overkill by some distance the best got into the top 20 at number 20 it won't stay there of course because there's a load more goodies to come but i've not checked lads um how it compares to ac uh, ace of spades but i would imagine it's by some distance better uh yeah quite a lot better um i think ace of spades yeah, let's see and orgasmatron while we're at it because this is the third um this is the third motorhead album we've yes, done yes it is yeah so ace of spades is down at 105 okay yeah orgasmatron is at 149 right um, yeah i mean considerably better isn't it but i i would have expected yeah. that to be honest it is you know it's widely regarded as motorhead's finest hour isn't it so i'd be well musically if not commercially well you 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 never so, know do you um, that's that's the beauty of this of, of this process i mean we can we can surprise ourselves from time to time but uh yeah it was pretty obvious wasn't it that that was always going to do pretty well conversely it was always pretty obvious that uh bonded by blood wasn't going to get quite such the same august scores but uh, anyway there you go right that's good fun we better think about next time round had we not we better wheel out Tico Torres so the the theme of our next episode spat out by our Tom Bowler of Topics and Themes uh, was the theme of going solo to an album of an individual who had previously been in bands and, um, well, for at least this part of their career or maybe forever, decided that they would uh, try and make it on their own. Okay, so I am going to pick an album by Robert Plant and an album that I really got into in, I think it was 1990, uh, it was was released. I remember it really grabbed me at the time. So I'm fascinated to revisit it. I'll get back into it again. I don't know how well, how much you two know of it. Yeah, it's called Manic Nirvana. Mm, very Interesting. good. Yeah. Shall I go next, Mark? Yeah, go on. Well, because I kind of met her last year. <laughs> I did wonder. I did wonder. I thought, you know what? I can't resist. So I'm going to go for the Metal Queen herself in her own guise, but with a different band. Um, post-Warlock, Doro Pesh, and her maiden, her debut um, solo album, Force Majeure from 1989. There you go. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever listened to that album, so that's going to be a We'll have to get past the opener. Absolutely we'll have to true. get past the first track because yeah. it's a cover. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, I've gone for a guy who's in a very, very, very successful band. I mean, possibly one of the biggest bands in the world ever. Struck out on his own, teamed up with a guitarist from another band that was extraordinarily well-known, but for many of the wrong reasons. And together they wrote a solo album for the first person I was talking about. The second member of this sort of double act is former Sex Pistol Steve Jones. And the singer and the artist under whose name this album was released is the one-time Duran Duran guitarist Andy Taylor and his debut album Thunder an enormous beautiful dripping slice of AOR wow sir there you go fascinating now there's there's a new one wow gosh (laughs) gosh Fantastic. Wow. Well, that's going to be a show. Fucking Andy Taylor, yeah. Doro Pesh and Robert Plant. That's your, that's your dinner party from heaven. Wouldn't you like yeah. to have this? Yeah, I was going to say, wouldn't that's you like right. to have this? Throw in Adolf yeah. Hitler. Yeah. It's just, it's a yeah. Bon Scott job done. Yeah, cracking. Good stuff. Good stuff. Right. Well, we look forward to doing all that next week. We're going to go away and have a good listen to all these three. Come back, review them all and um, see where they wind up in the Hall of Fame. Thanks for your company and we'll see you next time. Cheers. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.